thinking about the question. Um, and as a way into thinking this morning about this question of, of justification, I want to ask a slightly different question. What if I don't like who I think I am? What if I don't like me? <laughs> um, or even what if I, I'm bad? What if I have regret? You know, what if, it's not just I don't like me, but I'm bad. What if I'm wrong? What then? Yeah? What makes me me, and what if I don't like me? I mean, that's a theme of just so much uh, uh, art, isn't it, really? Like, uh, depressed um, blues and country and western music is full of, of that in various ways or another. Here's an old classic song, though. Um, the ever-covered Bruce Springsteen song, Dancing in the Dark, picks up on this kind of theme. The character is a pretty depressed character who, um, who sings in the song, I get up in the evening and I ain't got nothing to say. Now, that's a big line. <laughs> Um, I come home in the morning and I go to bed feeling the same way. I ain't nothing but tired. Man, I'm just tired and bored with myself. And later on in a song he says, I check my look in the mirror. I want to change my clothes, my hair, my face. Man, I ain't getting nowhere. I'm just living in a dump like this. Pretty cheerful, isn't it? <laughs> but I, have you felt that way? I'm sure all of us have at some time or another. Some of us feel that way all the time yeah maybe you know people like that maybe you are people like that where you don't like who you are you know what makes me me what if i don't like being me what if others make me uh, ashamed or unwanted as who i am you know what if others make me uh, or i fear that others will make me uh, unwanted ashamed huge huge question a challenging question and as with any of these things, there are many ways in, you know, and there are many elements to this. I mean, certainly these feelings can also be the mark of, of other things that need other kinds of help on a personal level, a medical level even, possibly, you know. Um, but what the Bible does is speak to the very centre of who we are and gives us a grounding and, again, a sense of how to interpret who we are as we get all the other kinds of help we might need as well. So it's not every answer on every level, but it is a very deep answer to who we are and how we make sense of who we are. And today, this question of, well, what if I don't like me? What if there's something wrong with me? Let's have a look at Philippians chapter 3 together as we think about this theme. That will be our grounding point, Philippians chapter 3. And I'll get you to read that to one another, actually. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Just pick somebody on your table um, and read it out loud. Um, uh, well, relatively quietly, <laughs> out quiet. Read it out quiet to one another. Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 11. All right, so first of all, um, the, the author here. So the Bible's interesting because it's, it's God speaking to us, but it's God speaking to us through others. Um, very rarely in the Bible. I mean, there are chunks which are, here is what God says, and it's quotations from God. Uh, but very often it's, it's God speaking through a human author who is active in the process as well of speaking. So here is God speaking to us, but speaking to us through a human author, the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' apostles. Um, and he is speaking about himself. And so God is teaching us truths um, through uh, the experience of the Apostle Paul and his own right assessment of himself having met Jesus Christ. And uh, in this passage, after some opening um, encouragements and warnings, it's a great uh, blessing to a preacher who goes on a bit long to see that the Apostle Paul in chapter 3, verse 1, says finally, when there's another two chapters to go. Uh, <laughs> um, 
Uh, it's a bit like Jesus at the end of um, John chapter 14, verse 31 says, Come now, let us leave. And then we get chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17 um, in, in John's Gospel. Uh, but after initial encouragement and warning, we then get to this point where he speaks in verse 4 about his reason for confidence. He says um, that uh, by the Spirit of God, we worship by the Spirit, with glory in Christ, we put no confidence in the flesh. Though, verse 4, I myself have reason for such confidence. And then he lays out the reason that he has for confidence, for a good view of himself, a good self-esteem, a good sense of uh, what if I like who I am, actually. I have reasons for confidence, he says. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in, in this human experience, I have more. And then he lists reasons for particular Jewish religious status, spiritual religious status based on Jew Jewish ancestry, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that is meaning of the, um, the Hebraic Jew, so not even just a, uh, a Jew of the diaspora, the widest spread of Jews throughout the Roman world, but a, a Jew, a Hebrew-speaking Jew. In regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He gives a whole bunch of reasons actually for confidence. So there are some people who, like uh, in that Bruce Springsteen song, look in the mirror and want to change their clothes, their hair, their face. There are others who look at themselves in the mirror and go, looking great today, Mikey. You know, <laughs> who like what they see, who have great reason to boast in what they see. Perhaps just, you know, get that hair a little and then you're good to go. Um, he's saying, from that point of view, from the point of view of the flesh, that is from the human experience, um, a human point of view, there are any number of reasons why he has reasons to have confidence. And actually, it's interesting, from a human religious point of view. So it's not just he's saying, I've got great frequent flyer miles and lots of letters after my name from my postgraduate degrees and I've got great clothes, great shoes, great skin, uh, great friends. It's not even just from a human point of view in those kind of worldly things, but it's actually from a human point of view in so far as spiritual standing and religious achievement. He, he describes his heritage with the people who treasure God's word and, and know God's ways, um, his being raised in that and then him living that out in his own life, in his adulthood, being zealous and passionate. And he says, as far as righteousness of the law goes, I was faultless. So when human beings look at one another and their behaviour and performance, um, his behaviour conformed satisfactorily. You know, that he was diligent, zealous, holy, devout, anything you want to say. Lots of reasons to boast. So here is someone, I guess this is interesting, I began by saying, what if you don't like who you are? Um, well, let's think about a person who does have reason to like who they are, but then meets Jesus and what their experience is, and, and actually will be surprised what we learn. Because having said, I have these reasons to boast, I have these reasons for confidence, I have these reasons to like who I are, not just worldly, but insofar as religious spiritual standing and zeal and devotion and um, uh, sincerity in my religious um, uh, performance, notice what he says. Verse 7. I consider these things a loss. Whatever was to my prophet, verse 7, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Implicit here, 
um, is, uh, you know, what the, elsewhere the Bible makes explicit, is that all of that stuff that we can boast in is insufficient to have a right standing with God, to have no fear of the judgment of God, to be confident in God's presence. On, on this level, some of us can have a reason to be confident. On this level, on a human level, we can have reasons to boast and see ourselves as better than others. On this level, even in a Christian building, there, there are people who might have, uh, from a human point of view, religious status or religious confidence or, um, uh, you know. But when it comes to God, implicit in his statement here is that actually, no, that righteousness that is just from a human point of view of my own, by the law, satisfying standard, is inadequate. In meeting Jesus, I find a better righteousness, but implicit in his argument here is in meeting Jesus, I realise my own standard isn't enough. It might be impressive from a human point of view. It might be uh, praised from a human point of view. But implicit in his argument here is that before God, we stand, uh, we stand guilty, even the best of us. I mean, he hints at that in verse 6 by pointing out that in his zeal, he persecuted the church. And that became his great shame, that in his zeal and his devotion and his uh, religious um, obedience, which all seemed so good, he missed, actually, God's great work of salvation. He was so keen to follow God's word, he didn't realise what God's word was pointing to. And so he ended up in his uh, zeal actually becoming a murderer, persecuting the church, even Christians to death getting approval to their death. But this, um, this implicit argument of our inability to earn our righteousness is made very explicit in Romans chapter 3. You might want to flip there. We will go back to Philippians straight after, or else you can just listen to me as I read it. Romans chapter 3. A very similar passage. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He speaks about a righteousness from God apart from the law, which has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There it is. And later on he says, where that is boasting, it's excluded. He says that in verse 27. So that's what he's saying here, that when I met Jesus, suddenly I realised, well, hang on a second, in my zeal I became so misguided in how it expressed itself. But more, in my zeal, I was putting confidence in something that's not enough. Because actually all of us, even those who are circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrews of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless, even them, there's no difference, all of sin, and fall short of the glory of God. Goes back to what we looked at in our last breakfast session, the sermon. Who is guilty of falling short of God, of rebelling against God? Everyone is. Everyone is. And where and how are we sinful? Well, not to the deepest intensity, every single part of us, but yes, every aspect of us is touched and tainted, even our religion. So as for zeal, he persecuted the church. Even our religion is tainted and uh, impure and distorted. Yeah. In the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, which lies behind passages like this, there are great rebukes against those who would boast in their, um, their religious um, obedience and compliance and performance, uh, where God says, from my point of view, your holy festivals and your fastings and your sacrifices, uh, they're, they're, they're like, it's like killing a dog. It's like 
you know, for a Jewish person, it's like eating a pig. It's, it's, it's your festivals may as well be drunken orgies. Like they're, they're detestable in my sight. They don't please me. Here, he says they're rubbish, they're sewerage, they're foul. They're, compared to knowing Christ, compared to God's standard and God's salvation, everything I can do and achieve and perform and, um, and deliver in my religious and moral personal life is so inadequate that by contrast it's like rubbish it's so inadequate that by contrast uh, i consider it a loss it's so little in terms of the gain it can give me before god it's a loss i mean think a little bit about currencies of of countries of the world that struggle on the world markets and whose currencies are like you know to buy a big mac you'd be spending 10 billion rupiah or something um that it's not as if Within that country, the currency isn't valuable and useful. You know, it's meaningful within that country. It's not as if technically you can't exchange it. On a global exchange rate, you can. But compared to a US dollar, a single item of that currency, comparatively speaking, is of no worth. So in the same way, it's not as if when you do good or when you participate in you know, devout religious uh, activity or, or anything like this, it's not as if it has no value absolutely. In fact, in other places, the Apostle Paul himself will say, you know, I, you know, I, I very much see the value in the Jewish heritage and all that's special about it. You know? He can praise Jews for their zeal you know, in seeking to, uh, to serve God and so on. But in that currency comparison, you know, it, it's 10, 10 billion Human righteousness will still not even buy you a Big Mac kind of thing. It's, when it comes to pleasing God, satisfying God, being at peace in his presence, being unashamed before his judgment, it's not enough. That's not where I put my boasting. In, in this religious performance, how much less do I put my boasting as if I can walk before God and say, check out how good these sunglasses are, God, and my hair and the shoes, right? And it all goes together, yeah, but looks casual still. And check out the degrees after my name and the notes from the examiners and check out, you know, it's not as if God is going to look at these things that on a worldly point of view we boast in. The number of followers, Lord, check it. You know, it's not... Considers that a loss in comparison to something of far greater worth for us, for him, for, for human sense of self and for God and our standing before God. Whatever was to my prophet, verse 7, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. What's often called an alien righteousness. Alien meaning strange to me. Outside of me, yeah? An alien comes from another planet. Uh, this is a righteousness that comes outside of myself, yeah? It's an alien righteousness. It's not what I can do, achieve, perform, meet. No, because, because I am a child of Adam and Eve, I'm sinful, I'm guilty, I'm unable to meet that standard. Um, but it's something that God gives to me in Christ. Christ, who was perfect where we're imperfect, um, his active uh, righteousness... Um, satisfies God's standards inside and out, perfectly and purely. Christ, who gave himself for our guilt and our sin as a substitute in our place, taking the judgment of God in our place. He, the righteous one, becomes the unrighteous one in our place. 
in that what's sometimes called the passive righteousness of Jesus, how he receives the judgment of God in himself. He lives a life we didn't live. He receives the judgment we deserve. And so that in him, when I'm in him, know him, trust in him, receive him, uh, I stand with him and with his right standard. I stand with him in his work of taking away my guilt. And so I know a righteousness, not for myself, not from the religious law and performance, much less from worldly standards, but from Jesus. His righteousness from God received by faith. Not by what I do, but what he's done that I trust and receive. That Romans passage we looked at speaks about um, what Jesus achieves for us that gives us righteousness in terms of redemption, buying free, you redeem a slave, you redeem something that maybe you sold to cash converters and you buy it back when you regret it later. Um, you, you, he, he buys us out of our guilt. Yeah, He rescues us. Or it speaks of it as a, a work of atonement, a sacrifice that forgives sin and satisfies God's anger. It appeases the anger of the just anger of God and forgives human guilt. And so, God who is just can call us just even though we're unjust. God who is right can call us right even though we're wrong. Because in Jesus, Jesus takes the penalty for our wrong, gives us the full benefit of his right. And so I stand in this weird situation of being both sinner and righteous by faith in Christ. And then he goes on from there to say, so now I want to live that out. I'm looking forward to when, and we'll look at this in future breakfast sessions, when I'm made new and, and, and transformed to share fully in his righteousness inside and out. But in the meantime, I want to live this out now. I want to know Jesus better. I want to know what he's done for me and live in the line of it and strain forward, press forward to live as he has declared me to be. Now become that in my very self. It's amazing because that's the heart of the Christian gospel. It's such a great, great, great news. It's not just there's God. It's not just uh, you can know what God thinks. It's not just you can know God, but it's that God can make you right when you're wrong. God can declare you to be okay. Okay with him. Okay for all eternity. Not because of what you do, but because of what he's done. It's really good news. What does this mean in practice then? I've got, I think, six reflections for the second half of our time together. Um, unpacking this theme of justification for how we think, how we live, for, um, how we think about what uh, identity. First reflection, I've hinted at this, um, but I just want to pause on it again. Don't forget that you're made in the image of God. So don't forget the first breakfast sessions, or if you missed it, maybe go back and listen to it. In, in saying, oh, like I consider everything that I am and have done a loss for the sake of knowing Jesus, it's all rubbish. <laughs> if you take that on its own, um, uh, you could end up in a sort of situation where you say, oh, well, everything that is Jake or, or Alistair or Sarah is, is rubbish. You're rubbish. You're all rubbish. The only thing that's good about you is that you're a Christian, something like that, you know, which sounds nice because it's so nice about being a Christian, but it's grim on another level, isn't it? That's all that's good about you. As soon as you stop talking about Jesus and talk about anything else, it's rubbish. <laughs> that's, that's not... Don't forget the image of God. 
It's not that absolutely you're zero, that absolutely you're a worm or a nothing and all that you have is Jesus in every sense. Like with the currency. It's not that a rupee aren't valuable within the context of that economy. Um, but it's when it comes to a right standing with God, when it comes to the standard God sets where nothing, but you still are something. You're a fallen image of God. You're fallen, desperately fallen, desperately needy, but still in the image of God. You are you. You are a precious human being. You are made by God. You are a something, not a zero. You're a human, not a worm. You are a precious human being. All of the distinctives about who you are is part of God's precious creation. Your biology, your ethnicity, your history, your hobbies, your achievements, your inner life. Don't forget that stuff. That that is precious, although fallen. That is precious, although unable to meet the standard of God and, and solve the issues of sin. That's first reflection. Second reflection. Yes, see here the serious limitations of your unrighteousness. See here the serious limitations of your unrighteousness. There are some limitations you have that aren't bad. They're just the nature of being a creature rather than the creator. Like you cannot run at the speed of light. I'm sorry. You cannot know all things. It's not a dare, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, there are things you can't do. You need to sleep. You need to eat. There are limitations that are good creaturely limitations. They're not bad. Then there are limitations that come as being a part of this world with its sickness and its, its uh, brokenness that we inherit as well that aren't sinful. They're not things to be ashamed of, but they are um, still difficulties that we have, you know, health difficulties and so forth. Um, but this is a whole other level. There is then the limitations of our unrighteousness that actually are wrong things, that there are things in me that are wrong. I do wrong things, I feel wrong things, I want wrong things, I say wrong things, I hurt others. And even if it partly comes out of insecurity and partly comes out of my complexes and partly comes out of my circumstances and my upbringing and all these sorts of things, I add to it my agency. You are not just your circumstances and your biology and your moods and your upbringing, you are also you. And you have agency in that, and you do wrong in that, and you're rightly guilty for that. Not all feelings of guilt and shame are wrong or unhealthy. But there's um, disproportionate guilt, um, you know, where, or, or, or um, inappropriate shame, where I'm feeling guilty or ashamed for something I shouldn't feel guilty or ashamed about, or extremely guilty and ashamed about tiny things, you know, so we, that's a problem, we need to deal with that, um, and some of the themes of the, this morning help, do help with that, but, but there remains the things that I feel bad about that I need to say, yeah, that's bad, I did wrong, I said wrong, I spoke wrong, I desired in the wrong direction, yeah, that I regret, that then leads to broken relationships with others and with God, that are broken because of what I've said and what I've done. So when it comes to peace with God, then there is that severe limitation. I'm not right. I'm not righteous. I'm not right with God. I'm not confident before God on my own. I can't satisfy God's standard. I can't even satisfy, if I'm honest, my own standard. In fact, that's a mark of a righteous person on a human level is they're aware of their flaws. Someone who always defends themselves and always justifies themselves 
That's a sign of a scoundrel, isn't it? Whereas someone who is aware of their flaws, in a sense, from a human level, that's a sign of, 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 of a better moral code. I fall short. I sit under the judgment of God, often the, my own judgment, often under the judgment of others. That's a serious limitation and frustration that's right to feel frustrated by, despairing of, uh, to carry an appropriate sense of guilt about. Yeah. In this respect, I'm at a loss. My life is at a loss before God. Now that should contribute to my sense of self. Uh, what makes me me? Well, part of what makes me me is what I've done wrong and said wrong. And the things that I want that I shouldn't want, the things I feel that I wish I didn't feel, the things I've said that I wish I could take back. That's part of what makes me me. Yeah? Um, and that, that should feed my sense of self if I really get a grip on that. Not, not in this kind of, um, oh, I'm a worm, I'm a zero way. But it should, in the sense of it should at least, uh, fight against a wrong kind of uh, inflated pride. Like there's a healthy pride. I did a good job. Look at me, mum and dad. I, I did well. There's a healthy pride. But that inflated pride, that self-absorption, boasting and bragging, that kind of thing. Should pop that, shouldn't it? If I grasp this, then hopefully I'll be a humble person, not a bragger and a boaster. Yeah? That I'll have a sense of my moral performance and my religious performance as, as, as not um, perfectly satisfactory. So there's a longing for forgiveness as a, a, a desire for God's power, not, my, not confidence in my own strength. Yeah? And it means that when I look at anything else, whether it's religious status or worldly status or sports success or financial achievement or good looks, that those things, how much less would I... I mean, of course they're not going to be satisfactory in God's eyes. So how much less will those things... Although they're great. You know, I ran fast, that's good. I look good, that's great. I've got good marks, well done. Th those things aren't bad. But I, I can, compared to knowing Jesus, they're a loss. In that comparative sense. You know? If these things don't do their work in me, um, and if I let them do a work in me, there should be a... Maybe the best word is ambivalence. An ambivalence about religious performance, worldly success, popularity, my own achievements, my own opinions, my own... Um, I just go, yeah. Yeah. Don't believe my own press, you know? Um, and maybe if you're more the low self-esteem type where, where you could never imagine having this issue, perhaps it helps you not believe the press of everyone else. That when you feel threatened or intimidated by the person who's so much prettier than you, stronger than you, smarter than you, godlier than you, more effective and efficient than you, or whatever it is, so much better at managing their personal finances and saving for their first home or whatever, you know, and you feel threatened by that, perhaps it can help you not believe their press either. Ugh, they're just made in the image of God like me. They're guilty like me. When it comes to knowing God, none of that stuff counts. And so perhaps I can let go of that sense of threat, of unworthiness, of... Um, Maybe even underneath that, perhaps resentment or envy, I can let that go. Yeah? Because compared to knowing Jesus, those things aren't worth much. And that person, if I was in their inner life, they would be carrying their own regrets and insecurities and frustrations and inadequacies. Compared to all that, then, fourth, treasure the alien righteousness of Christ. Treasure the gift of righteousness in Christ. Yeah, this is a wonderful thing. 
that now there's a part of being me. If I become a Christian and follow Jesus and I'm in him and find him, in him, his righteousness, part of being me is outside of me. It's in Jesus. Part of what makes me me is all of my biology and ethnicity and history and achievements and relationships, yes, and a central part of me and my specificity is Jesus and my relationship with him, yeah, but also his righteousness that is now my righteousness. That's part of who I am, to know me. To really get to know me, you've got to know about Jesus. Which says that as we build friends and introduce ourselves at class and work, sooner or later, more on the sooner side, we want to be sharing that we're Christian, surely. That's part of who we are. If someone wants to know us, they've got to know that we're a Christian. But part of being me and feeling good about being me as I look in my mirror and want to change my clothes, my hair, my face, is to also go, but hang on a second, I'm made in the image of God. Yes, I'm guilty as the fallen image of God, but I now share the righteousness from God in Jesus Christ. There is something good about me that God has made me in my creation. There is something good about me that God has made me new in my justification. This is now mine. It's from God, but it is now mine. Part of me is that I'm right with God in Jesus I find myself both in myself and in the most fundamental level in this new life in God. God has now said, I'm something more. I'm righteous in Jesus. Now, as we own that reality, that means that, that we, we have to embrace two parts of being ourselves, both a sense of being a sinner and being righteous. Simultaneously, we're sinners and righteous. And so we both need to get really used to repenting, seeking forgiveness, and really used to being forgiven and resting and rejoicing in accepting. Both things. Again, if you're on this kind of... Uh, <laughs> I'm doing some homeschool with my daughter, Esther, and uh, we're looking at um, uh, the, the Great Awakening and the um, Evangelical um, uh, Revival... And uh, as, as, as a part of that, we read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, the famous American preacher, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. Imagine advertising that as your, um, as your sermon for uni fellowship. And she did a little cartoon to illustrate her picture of what Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God was like, a little stick figure animation, which was basically Jonathan Edwards in the pulpit with an enormous hammer, <laughs> squashing people, then lifting them up a bit, a little, little picture of a cross, and then... <laughs> Again, <laughs> they just seemed like the sermon was just hammering them from her point of view, um, reading back into the 18th century over and over again. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Jesus saved you, so how dare you not accept Jesus? How dare you not accept Jesus? Uh, we can get into that kind of thing, right? Where even the Christianity becomes, oh, yeah, but Jesus had to die for me, so therefore I'm a worm again. <laughs> no, 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 we need to both accept, yes, I'm guilty, I need God to forgive me. And yes, it was my sin that put him on the cross. Yes, yes, yes. And... Not just in passing, Jonathan Edwards, you're forgiven, but you're forgiven. You're actually forgiven. You're really forgiven. It is a great gain. It is a treasure. It is a joy. It is something to press towards. It is something to hold up. It is something to delight in. We should get used to both those things. Both repenting and seeking forgiveness and being forgiven, accepting, standing in that, walking in that. I'm right with God. Fifth, this doesn't mean we ignore justice. Uh, ignore the things Christians do wrong because they should just be forgiving and gracious. A common um, criticism that came against the Apostle Paul, he quotes his critics who say, oh, well, if this is true, should we just go on sinning so that God's grace may increase all the more? 
Now, that was a common criticism. You're, it's like you're encouraging people to keep sinning so they'll keep getting forgiven so God will look more glorious in his mercy. And he says, no, that's not how it works. But not at all. It, it, there's a relational dimension to this and a new identity dimension to this that once I am made righteous by this alien righteousness, that lives in me by God's spirit and becomes who I am and I now live a new life. Yeah. Or we might say, should we be quick to forgive other Christians when they sin and be gracious rather than harping on about their failures? Well, no, again, we both repent and are forgiven. So it's not that, like, if a a Christian does something severely wrong or if a Christian leader does something severely wrong, abusive, corrupt, we mustn't rush to saying, oh, but we're justified, oh, forgive, oh, grace. This truth treats both truth and justice and mercy and forgiveness with equal weight. Yeah? And so you, you don't answer abuse with quick mercy, yeah, and moving on. No, you encounter abuse uh, with truth and with justice and with proper human consequences alongside grace and mercy in its proper place. Yeah? Sixth. And here's a final thought uh, as we finish up. Sixth and final thought. How does justification relate to the fears and the challenges of public calling out and shaming? Yeah, we're in a culture now that's a pretty anxious and shrill culture of finding and exposing and naming and calling out and pursuing those who, who fail and fall and don't meet a standard. And so it can be pretty scary in the context of that to go, oh, how do I live my life as a Christian, as a human, when I don't know when I might get a foot get a foot put wrong and be called out myself? Well, a couple of quick thoughts as we finish. First of all, from a point of wisdom, think twice before you do and say things, before you post something on the internet. Especially if we are in a heightened cultural setting where people will be quick to take offence and quick to hound you, then yeah, be wise, yeah? Don't pick dumb fights. Um, and when you speak, speak to be persuasive, not just to rally your followers against the outrage of others. So yeah, think twice, point of wisdom, in a world of calling out and cancelling and all that stuff. Secondly, surely what we've looked at here gives us a bigger time frame even than the, 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 the pains of being excluded or being called out or being shamed and, and looked down on. Even if, for a season, people exclude you and shame you and criticise you, it won't last forever. You've got something bigger than that in God and in Jesus. So that takes the sting a little out of that fear. Even if the worst happens and you do get excluded from a friendship group or trashed on social media or something, you have a bigger time frame. Thirdly, which means, uh, as well, you could be free... Knowing that what matters to you is more than what other people think and say and chatter about, you can tune out of social media and social groups and popularity contests and gossip and so on. Because you've got something more in God than that stuff, that means not only if you get hit with the bad side of it, there's something more, but also you could just choose not to participate as long as you want (laughs) entirely. Or for long seasons, if it's too much and too stressful 
the, the popularity in groups and out groups or the social media fretting and, and ranting and raving, then you can tune out because there's more to life, something profoundly more to life than those things. Fourth, um, if a Christian knows that God not only confronts evil but also forgives, surely those two realities living in our lives would mean that we ourselves should be slow to jump to outrage. Yeah? Slow to jump to outrage. Christians have had our own shameful history of cancel culture and calling out and censorship and getting hyper-offended and wanting to ban things. You know, Christians have a long heritage of that. Um, and we really shouldn't uh, be quick to jump to offence and shutting up others and shouting down others. But there's a tempering where we should seek justice and truth but be tempered by mercy and grace. A tempering. And lastly, surely if we know it is to be wrong and we know it is to be forgiven and made right, then we should have an openness to others, even the wrong, even the idiots, even the evil, that we should have an openness to hear and to learn and to understand and to connect and to persuade, alongside speaking the truth, alongside calling out injustice, alongside commending the gospel and defending the gospel. We know what it is to be exposed and rebuked. We know what it is to be forgiven and accepted. And so as we go about our conduct in a world where people are quick to point out and shame and critique and editorialise and challenge and confront and whatever, could we find a way where we know there's more to life than that? And that when we speak, we speak in a way that brings both truth and grace, that tempers, that takes the edge off, that finds a way through. Wouldn't that be great? That if Christians could be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. I think because we're out of time, we might have to chat after. But I'll, I'll just finish now with prayer because we have gone a bit over time. Loving Father, we pray that, uh, that this stuff does shape our hearts and our minds and our lives, our conduct together in community and our interaction with the wider community, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.